I'm from the UK, right? So when I went to the USA, I was shocked by how many farm ads there were on TV. That's not allowed in the UK. And I naively thought that was to sell drugs. But actually, it's not. Because listen to the list of side effects that they give after the farm ad. What they're doing is they're buying favorable coverage. The pharma companies pay more for advertising time than anyone else. And during the evening news, you'll see something like 18 out of 22 ads are pharma ads. Greetings and love, you beautiful humans. It's Ben Hardy, co-host of the show. This week, Mike and I brought on Anthony Samaroff, a longtime libertarian theorist and author of the book, Universal Basic Income, For and Against. Anthony came on to talk about his latest book in progress, which takes on Big Pharma. We also got into water fasting, the pseudoscience of psychiatry, and how he used a terrain approach to heal a vaccine injury. Before we dive in, I want to thank you, dear listener, for your continued support of this show. We love hearing from so many of you, and we deeply appreciate the ratings and reviews being left on platforms like Apple Podcasts. If you haven't done so and you feel moved to leave a review, it really helps us get these conversations out there to more people. We feel blessed and grateful to have this platform and a growing, passionate audience that shares our curiosities and open minds. Thank you. Now on to the show. Welcome back to Terrain Theory. We are live. Anthony Samaroff, welcome to the Terrain Theory Podcast. It's a great pleasure and an honor to be here. I know you've got many of the preeminent guests in this space and I've been enjoying your show. So it's a great pleasure to join you. It's a pleasure to have you on. Anthony, why don't you give the people a little bit of background on um, who Anthony Samaroff is? Who am I? No, that's pretty deep. Like, on what level of analysis do you want to go? Um, usually when you say, I am yeah, uh, an emanation of the one consciousness that is all things, um, seeing the world subjectively through the vocal viewpoint of Anthony Samroff. That's probably not what you were going for. Getting a little bit Alan Watts on you already. But um, yeah, I'm from Scotland, as you may be able to hear from my accent. I am a counsellor, a psychotherapist, and uh, for a long time, a libertarian theorist. I've always been into writing, so um, whatever I learned about, I tended to write about. And when I was uh, in college, I, I got a gig as a theatre critic, and that was the best thing that ever happened to me as a, a writer, because I reviewed about 150 theatre productions, plays, musicals, operas, it's the fucking interpreted that. Sorry, I don't know if we're allowed to curse. We do it a yeah, lot in Scotland. It. Whatever. We do it a lot on this podcast. Yeah, you're good. Oh, all right. Okay, good. Yeah. Well, then, fuck shit from this asshole. <laughs> there we go. I know. Right. I know at least. I know at least two or three. Uh, two or three listeners who have just walked away from the podcast, and that's fine. Well, Keep going. Well, Keep going. <laughs> they know. They know who they are. 
We've not even got to the good shit yet. Oh, God, I did it again. <laughs> On chain, stick with us. Go ahead. Yeah, no, it's Sorry to interrupt. You're a theater critic. Yeah, get in. Yeah, so um, I got into, yeah, so that made me, that gave me a chatty style. So when I got into writing about intellectual topics, I just basically started writing about economics and stuff like that, just like I was writing a theater review. And no one, like, don't get me wrong, Economists aren't exactly known for their chatty, accessible style. So mm. people liked it. So I kept on doing it. I wrote a book called Universal Basic Income For and Against. And I was writing a bunch of stuff, but not finishing anything, and including on the economics of healthcare. And then COVID happened, and or apparently happened. Uh, and then... Uh, I started writing this book, and which is on Big Pharma. And I was able to... Also, I ghost wrote a book for a naturopath, which taught me tons of stuff. So having that background, like... I felt like, at the risk of sounding conceited, I felt like... I was uniquely positioned to write this book. No one could write it but me because I've got the economics angle. I've got the natural health angle. I've also gone through my own health challenges, which I reversed to a large degree through terrain approaches. And um, no, I could give a panoramic view. And as soon as I started writing... I knew that this was the most important thing I could possibly be doing with my life. And so I've been pursuing that full force. And the good news is you can get a bunch of excerpts from the book already. If you go to 7pharmamyths.com, the number mm. 7, pharma, like P-harm-A, and myths, <laughs> like Greek mythology, um, dot com, and you can download a short ebook, which I think is pretty fucking good. I'm not gonna lie. Um, uh, and and read that, and then um, that's just to whet your appetite for the big book that's going to be coming out uh, whenever I finish it. So that's is I that that's uh, my long-winded biography. I hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> Anthony, Anthony, tell us a little bit then about about what you are, you know, what you are discovering and how you're going to lay out this book. Oh, that's such a good question. Each chapter is going to take it from right. A lot of the time when I was researching this, I would find some like totally shocking information on um, like page 157 of a book or something like that. And I was like, wait, what? The AMA admit that of the 30 years of extension of life that we've had, uh, 25 are attributable to public health things and only five are attributable to medicine and three and a half of that is preventative care, not pharmaceuticals. Wait, what? So I took all of that stuff and put it in the first chapter of the book. 
So the first chapter of the book blows the idea that we're living longer, healthier lives due to pharmaceutical medicine out the water. The I think the second chapter is called An Ounce of Prevention Actually Isn't Worth a Pound of Cure, which is about how the sicker you get, the more money they make. Then it's like, you know, there it, it goes through all the stuff. So there's one called Pay No Attention to the Man Behind the Curtain, which is about how all the money fund how all the money flows, how pharma funds not, you know, the it, how pharma money is behind journals, is behind AMA and CDC, everything is behind. Like a great example is like I'm from the UK, right? So when I went to the USA to live with a girlfriend, um, I was shocked by how many pharma ads there were on TV. That's not allowed in the UK. And I naively thought that was to sell drugs. But actually, it's not because, I mean, listen to the list of side effects that they give after the pharma ad. What they're doing is they're buying favorable coverage. The pharma companies pay more for advertising time than anyone else. And during the evening news, you'll see something like 18 out of 22 ads are pharma ads. Now, given that there's a thousand drug withdrawals or more, more than that, significantly more, a year, right? Wrong dosage, wasn't what it said in the bottle, blah, 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 right? They have to withdraw drugs. There could be a pharma scandal on the news every night of the week if the pharma companies chose to, to, to cover it, but they don't. So it's not what you think. So everything, um, continuing medical education, the colleges, everything. So that's pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Then there's one, I'm going to have to break it into two chapters now, but it was originally, um, I'm, going to, I'm going to call one trust the science on uh, bad science and medicine. Um, it was going to be in the same chapter as me going through the history of, of, medicines that were there that were widely accepted that got withdrawn and uh they were going to go in the same chapter but the thing is i just keep on discovering so much bad science and medicine that if it goes on the way it goes it will fill the whole book you know <laughs> so there's so much bad science and medicine so i guess um there's gonna ha be like the bad science of Christmas past and the bad science of Christmas present. And then it will <laughs> hopefully go on to the, the good science of Christmas future. But um, we, we pray. We, it's going to need divine intervention at this point because the CDC just added the mRNA vaccine to the child, children's schedule. So I don't need to continue. I, there's a, there's a, there's a chapter called Healthcare Doesn't Cost an Arm and a Leg about, you know, doesn't have to cost an arm and a leg about how we spend way too much in, 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 on healthcare compared to outcomes and how we could get cheaper healthcare. Everything. That's why it's such a mammoth project because I'm tackling it from every angle. So that's maybe 
half the chapters and it gives you a kind of idea of how, how the final book's going to go. But you don't have to wait for the final book because you can <laughs> open your browser right now and type in sevenpharmamyths.com and get a, get a real taster to whet your appetite. And, and does the final book have a title yet? Dude, I'm going to call it Big Pharma. You can't get a better title than that, huh? Mm. Done and done. Yeah. I I was going to I'm I'm I was going to call the the subtitle is going to be unless I change my mind none dare call it quackery. And the reason it's from a quote by John Harlington, whoever the hell that was, where he said, um, "Treason doth never prosper." What is the reason? Why, for if it prosper, none dare call it treason. The point being, if if you take over the government, it's not treason because you're the government. In the same <laughs> way, pharma's taken it over. So nothing they do is quackery. It doesn't fucking matter if their own journal says chemo has a 3% success rate and they mix um, slow-going cancers into the statistics to make it look like more more people live longer even though they don't or they detect the cancer earlier so so if you detect the cancer three months earlier it looks like people live three months longer but they don't really it's they still don't call it quackery because it's mainstream but if it's alternative it's also already crack automatically quackery so none dare call it quackery but um but it fucking is it is <laughs> I'm telling you. So um yeah, so that's that's um and yeah, that that question. Anthony, what struck me earlier as you were introducing yourself, it seems to me that you found well, you've said it that you found your purpose in life and your purpose mm -hmm. in life is to do this is write this book and essentially expose big farmer for what they are. And that's a, to me, that's a big deal. When we meet someone who has discovered their purpose and is putting all their time and energy that they have in this life towards something, that, that's profound and compelling. What I want to know is, what were those moments, those specific moments that made you decide, this is it, I have to take on big pharma? Were they discoveries? You mentioned healing yourself outside of the allopathic mo uh, model. Like, What were those, those moments that made you go, this is it, this is who I have to take on? Well, you know, I, prior to this crisis, the crisis is not the coronavirus. The crisis is people's psychosis over the whole thing and compliance. I was like into, I don't know, I was writing about economics and uh, I was hopeful that, you know, open-minded people would read it and change their minds because everything was driven by a humanitarian outlook. And... Everything I wrote has always been driven by um, the desire to reduce unnecessary suffering. And a lot of what I might have written, first of all, I realized that people don't change their mind when you expose them to new evidence, you know? Um, 
Yeah, I was listening to some of Tom Cowan's books who, who you've had on the podcast and he, he talks about the fourth cause of disease being being delusional and he talks about people who, a doctor who um, he thought had a pretty good chance of responding to a detoxification program to save his life from cancer but he said he didn't want to know because he'd been practicing medicine his whole life and, and he, he just would rather die than be proven wrong and and people would rather injure themselves so everything so much of what i would have let liked to write before seems futile um not only that but there's lots of there, there's lots of stuff i'd like to write about theory and I, I would only be writing to other people who share my views. And if I didn't feel like we were in a crisis, I'd pursue those avenues just because they're interesting. And there's nothing wrong with writing about stuff just because it's interesting. In fact, I'm finding writing this pharma book absolutely fascinating. There's tons of things that I've learned that are not even going to make it into the book. Otherwise, it'll be 200,000 pages. But but it's so interesting to learn about. The more I learn, the more interesting it is. But I just feel like it's too urgent. So the good thing about this book is it circumvents the idea of the intention of this book is to change people's minds. You know, I'm not the asshole whisperer. I don't, you know... I, I, I don't need to work really hard to make people believe, to free people of their delusions. The book is for people who really want to know the truth and want to make better decisions in their life. It doesn't rely on systemic change. If enough people read it and understand it, it will lead to systemic change and will get a better healthcare system. But as, but but the main thing is, it will help people, and they don't need to get their neighbours to agree with them for it to help them. If they take it, if they get the benefit from it, then their neighbours will see that they've got the benefit from it, and it will spread that way. So I think that explains why I feel like this is the thing to do. It's like direct impact on the radar. Yeah, you mentioned the word uh, quackery. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if, if um, you could enlighten the listener as to the origins of that word. Oh, did quackery. you read that in the ebook? I may have. Yeah. So <laughs> it's, it is said, well, I mean, it's a fact. In the old days, they used, the doctors used to eat everything with arsenic and mercury. And this would give people conditions like Bell's palsy and, uh, um, you know, other nerve. Uh, Abraham Lincoln threw fits famously because of the mercury that the doctors were giving him. And um, so, in a southern accent, the quicksilver doctor became the quack doctor. And, uh, and you know... It wasn't a pejorative. They, they were just um, 
Quicksilver Doctors, Quack Doctors. And I, I don't know, at some point, well, I mean, obviously those treatments didn't work. Um, they, they made people sick. They may, they may have repressed symptoms in some patients. But um, similarly, you know, how many treatments are they giving just now that have uh, dreadful side effects that um, are not being blamed on the medication? The answer is tons, because some people are on like seven medications. Lots of people are. And have there been double-blind studies on the interactions of seven different medications? Of course they're not. They're just re uh, rolling seven dices, or rather, you know, um, rolling the barrel on seven different revolvers, right? So, so and, you know, with a bu one bullet in each chamber. So it's like, I don't know, take, you know, and Angelina Jolie had both of her breasts removed preventatively in case she got cancer. And the interesting thing, and the, the interesting thing is the gene that supposedly might give her cancer actually helps repair genes. And, and as long as it's, yeah, I can't remember, actually remember the, I don't like to make statements I can't substantiate. I can't remember the details of that gene thing. It's, it'll be in the book. Um, but here's the thing. They, hard, they, they, they rarely cut off women's breasts anymore for cancer, or at least they shouldn't, because they found that, you know, just removing the lump is, is, no, is, is um, just as effective, more effective without the intrusiveness. I mean, how many people are they butchering? So I had another point to make on that. Um, also, you know, as you know, the, the tumor isn't the cancer. Cancer is a system-wide process. That's why you can remove the, the tumor. And sometimes it's necessary if you've got a tumor that's impacting on your ability to go to the loo, then you need to remove it so that you can take a dump. Right, so sometimes that's necessary. However, you know, one of my teachers, uh, Gary Tunsky, used to say, tell his patients, go to the mainstream doctor who says they're going to cut out your tumor and say, oh, um, okay, doctor, I'm glad that you can get rid of my tumor, but what are you going to do about my cancer? <laughs> you know, <laughs> so, so it's like, you know. But but here's the thing, the incentive structure of the system is such, do they get punished for causing side effects? No, they get more money because you'll come in for a treatment for the side effects. I was told by um, one person who used to practice medicine and uh, quit and fled to Panama that up until sometime in the 80s, the philosophy in mainstream medicine used to be you don't treat a side effect with another drug because obviously that's playing whack-a-mole. You either reduce the dosage or you take the patient off the drug completely. But now the philosophy is you can give a, you can give a patient a drug with severe side effects just so long as you've got a treatment for the side effect. So this is just a cascade of poisons.
I was <clears throat> I was checking out a stand-up comedian, Taylor Tomlinson. This was on a, a recommendation from someone close to me. And she, as part of her bit, talks about her issues with mental health, um, particularly right. like de- depression. She's been through a lot of hardship in her life. And so this is part of her bit. I think uh, part of this movement too of normalizing mental health issues, which I which I think is you know important for us to be open open to um and she she talks about going to professionals for her issues and the various medications that they would prescribe to her and they would tinker with the combination of drugs until they hit on a a combination thinking that she, they were treating depression but just tweaking and tinkering and introducing new ones and new combinations and then hitting a combination that seemed to address her her mental health symptoms mm-hmm. and then saying to her well actually this combination is what we use for people with bipolar so you must be bipolar so oh. not even starting with the diagnosis but the diagnosis comes after they come upon a, a, a combination of drugs that works and that blew me away number one that she's just one of how many people uh, are in the system and this is their their same experience and then two uh, the normalizing of this is how I treat my mental health is through a combination oh of in- incredibly zany ass backward approach to it. How many others are in this situation and then think that, that moving forward, this is it. I've found my solution. I've been given this solution and now to come off of this at any time, ri- I risk going back to, you know, what I, what I was facing before rather than, I, you know, addressing root cause and to anyone out there facing mental health, I, I don't mean to be insensitive, but I, I'm trying to grapple with what mm-hmm. we know are the side effects of all these drugs. And then two, the insanity of approaching a diagnosis sort of from the reverse. Yeah. Of all of the, of all of the areas where drugs are used, like psychiatric, Psychiatry is the most flagrantly pseudoscientific of them all. All of its premises are just, I mean, there's cases where you can read the book Anatomy of an Epidemic by Robert, Robert Whittaker, for example. If you can get him on the show, it would be quite a coup. Like, he would be a great guest because, um, He's really good on psychiatry. And um, it's like, he says, in some of the clinical trials for antipsychotics, what they did was they took a group of people who were already performing reasonably well on the drug, took them off the drug, and then randomized half of them into a placebo group and the other half put back on the drug. And they said, well, they do better on the, the, the group on the drug did better than the group off the drug. You mean the one that was withdrawing from the drug? What a shocking surprise that must come as. Mm. Right? That's how bad the science is in psychiatry. Um antipsychotics knock people out, right? And that's all so maybe your life is so horrible that you feel better when you're knocked out than when you're 
um, compass mentis. SSRIs numb people out. It's basically a gamble whether you feel better on a psychiatric drug or not. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. They'll try you on another one. And also, here's the thing. People's moods go up and down and up and down and up and down. So they go on the drugs when they feel at their lowest. And then maybe they go back to average at some point and they think, oh, it must have been the drug. It's called regression to the mean. Meme mean right so these mother sorry you got me swearing right see if i get off on a polite foot in an interview i stay pretty polite the whole time but if i start swearing i just don't stop so we're not stopping you yeah anthony you do yeah these i mean this i get really angry about psychiatrists because um you're on these inflated salaries you know for, for basically harming people six figures, maybe twice six figures, I don't know. And I'm in Mexico living on a pittance. Who's gonna put pay who's gonna pay me to go to continuing Medicaid med who's gonna pay me four or five figures to go speak at continuing medical education and give them a medical education. So but but not just that, not just throw grapes over the money. Although it's annoying because it's that's that's wealth being leaked out of society that could actually be paying someone to do something useful and help people. As a therapist, I've had lots of clients come to me that have been mistreated by mental health professionals in the past. And I've had, yeah... The complaints, yeah, of people who've had bad therapists are one thing, but the worst, the worst, the worst are psychiatrists. Condescending, dismissive, arrogant, not listening, acting like they know them better than they know themselves, not taking any time with them, just trying to fob them off on drugs. The worst case... The worst case, I don't know if this happened in the 90s or something, but uh, my client phoned their psychiatrist, sorry, told the psychiatrist that their partner was physically abusing them. And the psychiatrist picked up the phone and phoned up her partner to check out if the story was true or not. So, I mean, I think if you're going to be in the field of mental health, you should at least have to do a counselling course, at least to be certified by the authorities. They have got no counselling skills. Like, what the hell? It's such a clown world we live in. So, yeah, I mean, the stuff on psychiatry is really bad, really, really, really bad. As I said, it's a gamble whether you feel better, even if you do feel better in the short term. And the the long term outcomes don't look good. And Peter Gushka, however you, you pronounce, uh, uh, sorry, Peter, if I didn't pronounce your name correctly, formerly of the Cochrane Collaboration, who produced the best studies in medicine, more or less, um, showed, showed 
that in the long term, people do worse than if they'd never taken the drugs in the first place and that they're horrendous to come off. They're so hard to come off. And I didn't know this myself as a counsellor until I got into his stuff and it made me look at my um, clients that have are on them differently. I, di I didn't realise the importance of weaning off them if you've been on them for a long time and whatnot. It's like, it's, it's, it's really... It's really scary the road we've come down, you know, and and sometimes I wonder how we're going to get out of it. But the first thing is protect yourself, get yourself healthy, and then you'll be able to help the people around you because we've got a limited amount of power outside of ourselves at this juncture, you know. Anthony, as you with with that background in in therapy. And mental health. When you step back and look at the state of the world, look at what appears to me anyway to be an increase in the number of people who have or claim mental health issues, the normalization around the conversations about it certainly would lend themselves to feeling like more people have mental health issues. What do you see as as like the root cause to this apparent increase in folks having and dealing with mental health issues? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you can put it down to one cause, but... Causes, um, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, it's multifactorial, isn't it? Obviously, we're consuming so many more synthetic chemicals than we've ever been in the past, and that is messing with our biochemistry, I think. There's um, the stuff they're spraying on our food, um, which, you know, is, is cytotoxic and also messes with your microbiome and now... There's all the stuff li linking the gut to the brain. Um, sociological factors, you know, um, people don't know their neighbours. People are not in a community. I love online, but everything's moved online, you know. Places used to have a scene, you know. The west end of Glasgow, for example, where I grew up. I grew up in the south side, but it was so exciting to go to the west end when I was a kid. And I could, when I finally moved there, I was like, oh, I've come. It had a scene before online. But, you know, if you're into manga or you, whatever you're into, you find a Facebook group and everything's online. So people don't have, don't require an offline scene. And I think online should be a vehicle for creating offline meetups. So there's sociological factors. I don't know if all the screen time people are getting is, you know, the, the way people hold their body, you know, um, arching over, eh, eh, you know, when your chest's open, you breathe deeply, you know, people or people's shoulders are coming too far forward, you know, parenting, not enough contact time with mum and dad in the early formative years of life, people aren't breastfeeding for long enough, you know, where 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 do you start? It's like children need time especially in the formative years and lots of touch and everything's being farmed out you know mum's working dad's working it's like we've forgotten to center the world around life the individual comes first what would help the individual flourish 
And if we started with that principle, then we can enjoy all of these things. You know, laptops, social media. Um, I mean, your, your phone's a miracle. It's a supercomputer, right? It's amazing that anyone invented it. Who can say it's a bad thing? But now you've got that addiction to instant gratification. Oh, who did, did someone like, oh, only 17 people liked my Instagram picture. Oh, why does my Twitter post get so few likes? It's like hilarious, you know? So I think it's multifactorial. I mean, um, so we've got our work cut out for us to to change it. A lot, a lot of threads to pick up on. Thank you for... Uh essentially holding court. It's really nice to get to know you and what you think. Oh, um, just, well, yeah. I'm also interested, interested to hear from you guys if you have anything to add. Well, I was just going to chime in because I've been studying with Tom Cowan quite a bit the last couple of years, and he he's really what he calls the new biology. I mean, he's questioning how biology, or how our understanding of biology works from the ground up, even going so far as to to um, just to wonder if this the receptors that that modern medicine claims exist right. that these these antipsychotics work on if those receptors are even real, okay, um, and so that's sort of fascinating. Um, and maybe this is a good way to pivot into your work on voluntarism and libertarianism. But as you were sa- your critique of um, you know psych- psychology and psychologists and maybe they lack the training and that the authority, you know, the authority should be watching this. Well, do we really even need (laughs) to be deferring to authorities at all? I I think we've gotten very complacent as a culture, constantly deferring to authorities. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on what, you know, what sovereignty means to you and taking ownership uh, because it is all interrelated as, as it relates to health, but also, uh, lifestyle, for lack of a better term, like how we live our lives seems to be one endless cycle of outsourcing and deferring to authorities. So how do we start to take back that power? Right. I mean, that is a critical question right now because it seems to me that most people don't want us to take back that power. You know, they're deferring to the authorities. You know, when I was on the left um, and up until my early 20s, you know, I, I, the left was all about F the wars, like, get rid of the Patriot Act, the surveillance state is a bad thing, and the, the equivalent policies in the UK, um, and uh, also, you know, rich people exploiting poor people, and those were like the important things. Basically, a lot of it was fuck the government. And now it seems to be like they love the government and everything the government says is is true. So I, I don't, like, how do we shrink the state? I, I mean, I would trade the problems that I was worrying about in 2019 for the problems I'm worrying about now in a second. <laughs> like, it was like, Oh no, the left are economically illiterate and they're going to drive the whole society off a 
off a cliff of debt because they think you can spend all this money now and not have consequences in the future. And they're implementing all these policies that are, that are meant to help poor people, but they actually harm people, poor people and they destroy jobs. And like, I'd, 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 be, I'd happily rather worry about this than, you know, <laughs> someone's going to force me to take a poisonous injection. I'm more worried about the kids because they don't have any choice. Adults, to some degree, submitted to to taking the injection. I'm sorry if you were threatened with your job, but if enough people said this is ridiculous, there's lots of people who disagree with that. They're like, they got the COVID jab and they're happy to do it themselves. But if you ask them, they said, yeah, I think it's took, they took it a bit too far when they threatened people to lose their jobs. Lots of people think that. The problem is they don't say it out loud. So fuck them. Like, if you're not willing to take a moral stance on a critical issue then you know you're you're part of the problem so if all of those people said wait a minute this is not fair even if they themselves took the jab then we'd then maybe we'd be doing okay so i used to think people would think you have your way of life and that's good and i have my way of life and that's good uh, and, and that's fine you do your own thing i'll do mine the really scary thing is about this, they made a virtue out of live and let die, you know, instead of live and let live. So how do we take back our sovereignty? Start with what you put in your mouth, I guess. Get out in the sunshine, do some yoga, get nice and strong, fit, healthy, breathe clean air, and... um. Find your sense of purpose in life and do it. You know, I don't, I'm not scared really of, people say if you're going to write this this book, you should get um, private security. Someone <laughs> else said, uh, Judy Michaelowitz said in her, in her book, um, I was told not to go to lawless countries like Mexico or India because they are, two places that I love. I've spent over seven months in India and maybe I'm coming up to the same amount in Mexico in total. Like, because uh, they'll just take you out. Like, if they want to take me out, they'll take, you know, I don't care. Like, I know what I'm doing when I get up in the morning. Get good social skills, get good friends. Um, I may be short, but I'm not short on friends. And that's a great blessing. <laughs> I've got I've got great great people in my life. Make your life amazing and spread the love. I mean, what else can we do at this point? Learn things that are useful and then teach them to other people who are willing to learn them. Get like I'm so not handy, for example, you know, I couldn't fix your plumbing or make a picture frame or anything like that. But um before the fake pandemic I started a woodwork class because I thought okay I don't need to be I don't need to be good at this but see if someone says hey Anthony do you want to come and help lay down the floor in my apartment which someone did once by the way uh, I'll be like yeah I, I don't want to be intimidated by it at these at this juncture in history you need to be a pen, you know, a Swiss Army knife. You need to, you need to be skillful. 
so you can be useful to your fellow man. And it's great getting all this intellectual knowledge. I know about tons of stuff because I'm a nerd. But I realized the one thing that the education system really took out of us was the... Here's the thing. Like, if you're a mechanic, you've got to be practical. Like, if something doesn't work, it won't freaking work. When it comes to ideas, you can have stupid ideas about economics, political science, history. Who the, When's it ever tested, right? So they disconnect people from the physical world by making the entire education subject-bound rather than object-bound. So what you need to do is anything, learn anything practical. Go to a salsa class, whatever. <laughs> you know, it doesn't really matter. Something that engages you, your body, and you can either do right or wrong. Like, I really recommend people do that. You know, in ancient Greece, they called the school a gymnasium. And philosophers, what's your perception of a philosopher now? Some guy in a tweed jacket with glasses, smoking rolled up cigarettes outside the philosophy department, speaking to his postgrad students. And that's great. But I'll tell you something. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle went to the fucking gymnasium. They were buff, right? <laughs> they took care of their physical body because they knew if they were strong and fit, they could think better. So, yeah, start with the objective, and the subjective stuff's great as well, but everything has to, everything's a balance, and we're like way too balanced to being thinky. Learn to breathe properly, because it'll help you manage stress. You're, um, you, you mentioned before we started recording that you're on day 13 of a water fast as you take a sip from your big red mug. Um, right, thanks. And, you want to talk about that at all? How that experience is going for you? And oh, one wow. thing that we we've come the 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 term crystal clarity comes up a lot when Ben and I have discussed this with with past guests. And are are you just tell us about that? Yeah, man. Well, I mean, this is the most profound one so far. I'm not new to it. I've done 21 days twice before. On your own. Um, uh, no, I did them in Tanglewood. I was listening to you yep. with, uh, yep, w- with Lauren Lockman. But this one, this one, me and some friends got a house and were co-supervising. One's yep. a doctor, and uh, most of us have been six out of seven of the guests that have been here so far have been to Tanglewood. Someone's coming tomorrow for a shorter fast. They've been to Tanglewood. Yeah, and that's the that's the whole bunch. So this one's the most profound one. Um, I definitely got crystal crystal clarity. I had so much energy in the last seven days, and I've had the miracle of like exploring my body. <laughs> I've been exploring my body. <laughs> <laughs> You're so new age. <laughs> and, and new ways, like, obviously I'm not doing crazy yoga poses. I'm not, like, good at yoga because I've got, 
like injuries that stop me that will stop me from ever being good at it you know i can't straight straighten my arms above my head uh, i have low i have a bunch of injuries but learning yoga has helped me to work to accept my limitations and try and improve anyway so even though I've got these injuries and stuff, it's a bit embarrassing when you spent six months on yoga retreats and someone comes in for the first time and is is more flexible than you. But you learn to live with it. So he's never done yoga before. So because I'm not doing anything strenuous, just like the smallest movements and stretches into my neck and like holding a tiny stretch for like, a couple of minutes until that part of my body relaxes and now I've kind of been moving into the shoulders and places in my back and I just really feel like I never would have done this if I hadn't done this fast which teaches me that makes me so sure that this is a process that goes deeper each time you do it I, this was really the psychological and spiritual if you like emotional benefits of fasting really became obvious this time i think um because I'm, I'm all about like clear, uh, you know my main reasons are like healing my gut and stuff like that and just general organ repair and detox of course like i didn't have as bad detox symptoms as anyone not that most people had bad ones a couple of people did I had the least, but I know I'm detoxing because I drink. I'm so thirsty. I've been mm. like drinking so much water, so I, so I know I'm trying to get rid of stuff. But um, yeah, clarity of mind, like you said, uh, I've thought up new approaches to problems I hadn't thought before. Got more enthusiastic, but it's also made me realize how really sluggish. You know, when you get to that those stages in life where you're just kind of like dragging yourself along doing the things you need to do and I was driving myself so hard with the book because I'm at the ebook that you can get from for free or make a contribution at sevenpharmamyths.com you know I, I'm writing an expanded edition for paperback maybe a hundred words and I thought it would be quick but it was just taking so long so the longer it took, the more I was like trying to force it and work for hours, like just go to a cafe and sit down and write, and like not doing the exercise, not doing it well, because I just need to get it finished, right? And that was putting me in a, I guess I had a lot of inertia. The amount of energy and the good moods that were coming up in the first week made me realize if I ever get in that state of mind again, I could just maybe fast five, six, seven days, even while working. It was, I'm not saying it's going to be like this for everyone, but it was, it was pretty much a breeze. I started slowing down on day nine, 10. Day, we slowed down yesterday, day, day 12. And that's kind of, I don't know, because I've not done anything strenuous, but continued today. So I might, I might stop soon because I am. Um, I don't want to take a long recovery time for this one. I brought a little bit less weight this time than last than I thought I was carrying, and um, it makes a lot of difference because my first fast, I was the lightest. My first twenty-one days fast, I was the lightest, 
And really, I should have stopped on day 19, in my opinion, not 21, because I was just, each day I stayed on, just extended the amount of time it took to recover by more than a day. But mm-hmm. I didn't know that at the time. I didn't know about fasting as well. Whereas the second time I was like 12 pounds heavier um, and 21 days was a breeze. I could have gone for a couple more days if I had time. Uh, this time I was I was somewhere in the middle but closer to the first one, whereas I thought it would be closer to the second weight. And because I just want to write this book and keep going, I'm probably going to I'm probably going to start refeeding soon. I'm not. I'm not doing 21. That's for sure. So, but it's been good though. I don't know if that's more details than you wanted. No, that's good. It's interesting that um, I I wrestle with that. Um, I haven't been able to strike that. I think Ben is probably better at this because Ben, you you work a lot of hours a week, but you have worked in time to step away from your computer, to go outside, to like break up the day. Whereas I've been living more of a <laughs> quote unquote bipolar existence where it's like, mm-hmm. I am just straight up naked in the sun gardening or I'm locked to my computer, cranking out emails and booking gigs or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I haven't figured out what that, but I like that you, you're able to see your tendencies coming and say, okay, I'm starting to get a little manic or trained to my, my device. I'm going to launch into a water fast to break up the cycle. And and I think that's an interesting tool that I never considered using. Yeah, I mean, it's totally new teaching for me. I've not put it into practice yet, but I just really felt so rejuvenated. And a a water fast really is a rest, you know, 50% of our energy goes to digestion. So you're literally giving the body a rest a deeper level so the the problem is for most people of course they're so toxic that that they don't feel like it's a rest because they're they're detoxing real fast but the truth is most times and not it's not always true if you can get to day three it becomes so much easier you get the massive detox the first couple of days Day three, you stop being hungry and you you won't be hungry for the rest of the week or eight days or whatever you decide to do, four days, five days, because your, your digestive system's just off. You know, you might psychologically like the idea of eating, but you just don't get hungry. So a one-day water fast is good, better than not doing it at all, but I always caution people there's a risk because see if you do a one-day water fast and you're like, oh, it was so hard, you'll think doing a longer one is really, really hard. But actually, it usually gets easier. So, so so, yeah, it's like people just need to be advised. I I certainly found that by similar to what you experienced by day three, it did get easier. And I found too... By day three, there was an incredible sense of accomplishment. I mean, it's longer than I had ever gone in my life without eating. And then, then came the, the curiosity uh, and almost the like competitive sense with myself. Mm-hmm. Okay, how far can I take this? Because awesome. if I can go to three, 
then what's the limit here? Uh, and I only ended up doing doing eight because I did it. Hey, that's um, great. It it really it really was Anthony and and I I am eyeing another one in the very near future, um, at least eight, perhaps longer. Um, the twenty one it sounds like it, it is best done when supervised or in a group setting or um, perhaps on a retreat. It's interesting that you said eight because in yoga they say you can do up to eight days without any risk of damage to the system. Hmm. So that's the that's the number of days that they say. Oh, yeah, I did it. It's a very I, it's I, an auspicious number. I did not know that. I think it just it maybe just happened, or there was some intuition there that I wasn't aware mm. of. Um, good to know. Uh, and so you're you're thinking of ending on eighteen, nineteen? Is that right? No, 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 no. Uh, I, I'm two weeks. It's, it's, oh, two weeks. It's gonna be two weeks. Yeah. Okay. Um, because I it's mostly because I just I want to get back to work, so yeah. I don't want a long recovery time. And also, I've got so much out of this already that i don't feel like um so i'm just going to refeed on fruit for 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 a few days and that's going to be awesome yeah i always enjoy that but then i'll be looking forward to something a little bit more adventurous (laughs) anthony you mentioned earlier on in our conversation that you had your own journey health journey overcoming some challenges and you mentioned that you use some notions around terrain to to do that. And I wondered if you could share a little bit more about some of those health challenges you faced. Sure. So, yeah, I'm pretty sure I was vaccine injured. I've got things um, associated with that. You know, I had all the, the food allergies and the um, just mostly wheat and dairy. But I didn't know that I had them. So I was eating all this stuff when I grew up, you know, my... Um, I was eating everything and so that probably made things worse and worse as I got older and you need to roll back all that damage. Um, I have, yeah, and then when I went to school, we have this injection. I don't know what you call it in the USA. In the, in, in the UK, they call it the BCG, which was a three-in-one, but it's not the same as MMR. Anyway, before they gave it to us, they they tested us. I was dreading getting this in- injection anyway. And I came up with a big blotch, right? And they were like, oh, well, I mean, that means either you're allergic to it or you're immune. So they didn't give me it. And I was like, phew. Now, as an adult looking back, I'm like, well, if I was allergic to that one, how many other things did they inject me with that I didn't know I was, that, that, that they didn't test me for that I was also allergic to? So I had eczema. Once it got so bad, I got empatigo. By the way, I'm totally eczema-free now, so the terrain stuff totally worked. And I had I got all, all other skin stuff like blotches on my. Um, I'll tell you some, like bad doctor stories. I got blotches on my chest, and uh, you know the the doctor gave me something topical. As you know, all their med- medications just treat symptoms they don't treat the rest the root cause it went away and then obviously when I finished it came back I went back to the doctor and said you know this is you know 
one of the many times that made me think doctors don't know shit from a very young age, uh, I was like, you know, why did it come back? And he was like, he shrugged and he was like, um, for a lot. And then he paused and he went, poor care. As it as it was my fault, my fault, poor care. I was like, what? I wish I'd been like, what exactly do you mean by that, doctor? Like, in what way did I take poor care? Because I'd like to correct that. What what the hell does that mean? Mm. Right. So, I liked that doctor when I was a kid, but later on, when I grew up, I, and on reflection, he was kind of an asshole. Like another time, yeah, I got depressed. I suffered from depression and anxiety. I think that was all related to everything else because as the body's got more healthy, I don't feel anxious and depressed. So um, I'm still working on levels of anxiety, actually, that through, you know, breathing exercises and everything. Uh, but now it's like more of a learning experience. It's not like it was before. Um, um, so, yeah, uh, I went. And he was going to put me on an antidepressant. And I was like, okay, but I'd have to do some research first. And he went, okay, doctor. And I was actually shocked. I thought he'd be happy that I was taking an active interest. But actually, he was a patronizing asshole. He was like, okay, do yeah, okay don't fucking do what I say. Do your own research then. What the hell? So... Yeah. Anyway, um, so all of this stuff, uh, blotching on my feet, unsightly, a lot of mucus, which is probably dairy. Um, but I, I, I went to see a doctor on the Isle of Wight called Dr. Mike Lambert. And he w had a PhD in the medical sciences but he all he just practiced all alternative stuff, which is really interesting. And he said he got invited to medical conferences in Europe. And once uh, there was a pharma rep saying that herbal medicine is nonsense. And he was like, he stood up and he was like, well, then how come all of these drugs that your company makes use extracts from herbs? Which is really funny. <laughs> a lot of people don't like me there, but some people really, really, some of the doctors really, really like me being there. They like, they love it. So, anyway, he went, that will all be your digestion. And he gave me some probiotics, prebiotics, um, some digestive aids, some, a bunch of stuff. And he also had some like really cool machines like he hooked me up to and put me through. And then he swabbed my skin and there's all this yellow stuff that had been that come out my skin. He's like, see, that's all coming out your liver. It was like really weird. I wonder what that machine was. Anyway, that confirmed that doctors know nothing because I took the stuff and yeah, everything improved moods like no the mucus the blotching on my chest so it put me on the right track in hindsight i see that he he was still it was still to a degree just an offshoot of the allopathic model where but he was helping but it was like not the holistic view that we now take but given this was quite a long time ago you know maybe 
up to 15 years ago. So that started me off. I read the book The Medical Mafia by Giz Lang Langtot. Um, that was quite good. And yeah, I mean, I just had a heard some stuff about vaccinations. I just had a general sense all the way back then when I was like 20, 22 or so of this. And it's something that I picked up and put back down. I could have made a lot better choices a lot sooner. I wish I'd known about the power of fasting back then because that's really what I needed, to be honest. I'd so overburdened my system by eating foods I was allergic to and eating foods that my body um, didn't tolerate well that the, the best thing I possibly could have done was like regular fasting in my early 20s. It would have fixed almost everything. And it's continuing to fix me now. So are you um, are you still dairy free, gluten free? I can actually tolerate um, wheat and dairy now, as long as I don't overdo it. Mm. So, but yeah, I'm like, you know, in Mexico, I'll occasionally have something with dairy in it um you know the cheese or whatever because they serve the food with that but um and you know i was surprised because i i don't order it but you know if they bring it it's really hard to resist you know one, once i just had a, a glass of wine on a date and you know they brought crispy bread and it was so good i i knew the next day that it wasn't that it, that it, that it wasn't a good decision Fast forward a couple of months, I was at breakfast not that long ago before this fast and without my requesting, they brought some bread with it and I, and I ate it and I didn't notice any drop off. Um, I didn't notice any ill effects at all. So I, I try and avoid it, but maybe every now and then is luxury. So in addition to adjusting your diet, and then also addressing gut health through prebiotics um, and probiotics. Were there any other steps? That, yeah, were there any other steps that you've taken to address what you suspect was a vaccine injury, like specific detoxes I, that you've I, done? Well, I kind of take the holistic view. So when I when I take something, it's not to address the vaccine injury as such, okay. or it's like to improve the terrain as a whole. A uh, hyperbaric chamber is awesome. I think it's probably prohibitively expensive in the USA. But if you're ever in Central America or South America, definitely go. Like the best thing to do would be like to. I I know not everyone could do this. But it's like if you had two weeks and you did it ten times in two weeks, you'd be like off the charts. It's so tangible the benefits of it. And it's not expensive here. Um, let's see. You know, you can have um, broken cell wall chlorella every day. It's got lots of be beneficial ingredients in it. And it, it binds to heavy metals. You need to take quite a good, a healthy dose, you know, to get those effects. Dr. Dietrich Klinghart, I don't know if it's true or not. I can only report what I've heard. Herod said he wasn't sure about people taking it in low doses because it might just mobilize the toxins and then they'll go and run somewhere else. So it's good to get take quite a bit of it if you're going to take it so it really bonds with them and takes them out. Um, 
I don't know. I've I've tried tons of stuff. I mean, I spent six months on yoga retreats, so or more more than that actually. Um, so trying to get in shape, but like I I was it was all it was all like I'm too anxious. I'm too depressed. I'm too slow. I'm too low in energy. This is the yoga stuff started way before I knew about all this terrain stuff. You know, I was leaving no stone unturned. I did like something like biofeedback. It's called mm-hmm. Brain State Technologies is the company. I did quite a lot of that. And that helped moderately, but not enough that I'd recommend it for the price. Like if I was a zillionaire, I'd probably keep on doing it. Uh, that was a long time ago. Um, you know, I was just searching for answers. But I didn't really find them until I found fasting, I think. I think fasting is the most effective thing I've ever done. Like, I'm so glad that I that I put myself to the challenge of, like, doing all that yoga, even though my body isn't fit for it and I wasn't in good shape when I started. And I learned so much about myself. But I... I could have benefited from knowing about fasting sooner, I think. Well, I think that's one of the reasons why we so thoroughly enjoy having conversations with folks like you who are doing the fasting, folks like Dr. Grayson Dart, who've done them and who advocate for them so that we could get this message out to to some of the younger audience members so that they can introduce right. it earlier in their life. It's and interesting it's that you bring that up. Uh, sorry to interrupt, but um, no, while no. we're talking about it, um, so an old friend from from childhood uh, just posted on social media that their child, who's maybe six or seven, is going through um, a cancer recovery. I think it was a, maybe even a brain wow, tumor. Wow, so sad. And and my, and my brother actually reached out to me and said, "Hey, so and so's going through this." And because my brother knows we're having conversations like this every week, do you have anything you want to recommend to to this family? And you know, the terrain, when you're so deeply immersed in the terrain camp, it's easy to forget that not everybody, <laughs> far from it, is cognizant of this other paradigm of, of um, you know, essentially toxins being the, the main culprit in all illness yeah. and detoxing, uh, all sickness being detoxing. But I, of all the different arrows in my quiver that I could have reached for if, if I chose to reach out at all, which I ultimately I did, Water fasting seemed like the obvious choice because it's, mm. while it may come as a surprise to people who have never heard of any of these holistic modalities, it it just seemed, so what I sent was the an interview with Lorne Lockman about mm. Tanglewood uh, that Alex Zek did and an interview with Veda Austin and all of her uh, incredible research on water. And it seemed like an inspiring and l- not insulting or invasive modality to recommend to somebody who's completely potentially new to the holistic health uh, world. And I haven't heard back yet, but um, it is a really powerful modality and very simple. And if you can, you know, if the person can afford to to go to Costa Rica and have someone like Lauren sort of walk them through this process, as it sounds like you have experienced, um, seems like a really great way to start, especially um for a child maybe right well i mean i can advise because i don't have the expertise or the experience i mean you'd you'd, you'd be better asking dr cowan to be honest if you have a personal relationship with him 
Um, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't even know where to start. I guess you could um, put the child on a 36-day, 36-hour water fast, you know, um, after dinner, who sleeps and give them breakfast and see how they respond. But what would you learn? You know, how would you know what was going on with the cancer process after after that? You can't, you don't have a form of x-ray vision to see what's going on in the body. So I, I don't really have the expertise to comment on that. I would just say it's a really sad story. Um, and imagine people getting cancer at seven. You know, what have we, what have we done? What have we done with this planet that would read, um, lead to those sort of outcomes? It's really shocking. That's an excellent point. And uh, it's hard to know. Earlier in the conversation, you said, you know, you had a desire to reduce unnecessary suffering. And um, I think the irony is that um, that's exactly what the quote-unquote vax camp thinks they're doing that's what vaccines do is this the story that we've been sold for decades these these reduce unnecessary suffering and of course in this paradigm where everything is inverted we're, we're realizing it's quite the opposite but i think that's why it's so hard to not only broach the subject but to have the conversation because both sides think that they're reducing unnecessary suffering. Right. And, uh, you know, all we can do, I think I like your your approach of become as healthy and strong and sharp and vibrant as you can, because ultimately, like anything else, seeing is believing. And it's sort of a slower process because it doesn't happen overnight for any of us, but it does happen. And so the it more does. of us that, that can walk in, in our truth and walk in our power and walk in our health. I mean, I just had the realization yesterday, because they say, let thy food be thy medicine, right? Mm -hmm. And um, I realized, and that doesn't happen overnight either. And I've gone through phases where I'm following this protocol or buying zinc tablets or vitamin C or whatever it is. But then I realized that like more and more of my pantry and my refrigerator is just like jars of sea moss blends or mm -hmm. bone broth that I made or mm -hmm. egg salad with homemade mayonnaise. It's like, it's just becoming more and more wholesome and local mm -hmm. the longer that I do it. And it's less reliant on any sort of supplementation that comes in a plastic bottle. And it's just part of my regular diet now, but it didn't happen overnight. This is like a three year process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it is a process because I, most people know what they should, at least some of what they should do, like get more exercise and eat better. But it's the psychological element, you know, the attachments to unhealthy habits, like, and if you can make a step in the right direction, that's um, that's beneficial. Like, one, you know, you can't be too doctrinaire. You know, if you're like, I should be perfect, 
then you're setting yourself up to fail. You know, a ship takes a long time to turn. So right. we need to be self It's like almost a new age cliche. But you need to be self-compassionate. And sometimes it's good to make a plan for the next few days. You know, if you want to take a detox and say, well, I'm going to eat only eat fruit for a week. You know, to get all that high water content food um, through my... It's important because when you drink water, it's absorbed as soon as it hits the walls of the intestines. Whereas when you eat fruit, it goes all the way through the tube. So you're getting such a deeper level of hydration from eating a watermelon or a papaya than you get from just drinking water. You know, Pat, don't, if you've got a difficulty with making decisions or sticking with it, or I'll, I'll, I'll end up, you know, here in Mexico, eating chilaquiles, which is just basically corn chips with salsa over them for breakfast. Just decide in advance. I'm going to break my fast with watermelon. No, I'm going to I'm going to have watermelon for breakfast. And then you don't need to think: Should I have this? Should I have that? You know, there's all sorts of tools you can use. But it is a process. I had the wisdom to make lots of better decisions. I had the knowledge to make lots of better decisions sooner than I made them. But I didn't have the wisdom, you know. I, I, I wasn't ready to make such radical shifts. And a lot of what I do is natural to me now. It's not. It's not. It's just part of who I am. It's important to give yourself credit for how far you've come, I think. Because if you don't give yourself credit, then you're not sending the message to your unconscious mind that this is a good thing and I want more of it, right? If nothing's ever good enough, why would you ever do anything positive? Oh, what you've, <laughs> if what you've done isn't good enough, then how's what you're going to do going to be good enough, you know? It's always just now, you know, just make one better decision. That's enough. And then make another one after that. Yeah, the power of affirmations. Anthony, mm -hmm. speaking of, of making good decisions and healthy habits, I want to ask you the question we ask of all our guests, and that is, what are your non-negotiables, those healthy habits that you do every day to tend to your terrain? Eat high Eat some high water content food do some stretching slow down your breathing regularly during the day breathe slow and deep and don't rush the out breath that's beautiful. three things beautiful and anthony where can the listener learn more about you and your journey all right um get the book at sevenpharmamyths.com there is an option. You can get it for free. If you want, you can give a contribution, which would be really appreciated because pharma reps are getting paid six figures and I'm not. And when I'm writing, I'm not working. And I've taken, I've worked a lot less hours while I'm writing this. I'm freaking living in Mexico. You know, it's nice and cheap here. It's 
partly it facilitates me in being able to work less so I can work, work on the book more. And speaking of work, if you like my outlook, my personality, if you think I'd be a good counsellor or therapist for you, you can contact me through social media or you can go to beyourselfandloveit.com beyourselfandloveit.com and uh, I guess if, if, if you let me know the terrain guys sent you, I'll do a free consultation to see if we, if our personalities, if you think, usually if I want to work with someone, they want to work with me. And if I'm not feeling it, they're not feeling it. So it's more like just, to, you know, and those conversations are usually really useful, even when, even when we don't continue. So those, I've got tons of links, you know, but I think it's better not to give more than two. If you want to find out more about me, you no doubt will. You know, you'll check me out. You'll type my name into iTunes or whatever you use, you know. So those two links, sevenpharmamyths.com and beyourselfandloveit.com. Beautiful. And we'll put those links in the, in the description. Anthony Samaroff, thank you so much for joining us on the Terrain Theory Podcast. Thank you so much. I had a, such a great time with you guys. It was it was awesome. Yeah, really fun show. Thank you. Look forward to meeting you in person one day. Welcome everybody to the after party in the pineal room. I'm Ben Hardy and I'm joined by Michael Joseph Miranda Jr. Hi Ben. You know, I, I reached out to uh, Dr. Covell a couple days ago. I wanted to get some of his CMOS as a Valentine's gift for Ruthie. And I wrote to him and he said, I am in the pineal room right now. This is no problem. <laughs> it made me so happy. <laughs> Uh, we we need to take a trip to the actual physical pineal room. Yeah, that would be great. I think it's in it, well, it's it's wherever it's wherever you are, frankly. But I think it might be in Queens, New York. In Queens, New York. <laughs> yeah. the The conversation around around sovereignty. I appreciated his perspective. I was anticipating an answer that looked more like. Forming, uh, forming a band of a mob with pitchforks and uh, going up against the system and uh, ab- you know, advocacy and activism. Right. And it really wasn't. And it makes so much sense. It's one of those common sense, sort of common sense answers when you think about it. But of course, like start with yourself, be the change you want to see in the world. And in this case, it was be the, you know, be the, the, the manifestation of, you know, the potential that you have as a human being, like realize that potential that you have as a human being in all aspects, uh, physical, spiritual, emotional. And that's where you start. That's how you reclaim sovereignty. Yeah, that is empowering. I think the uh, tension always arises and all, all of this is sort of intellectual and it's hard to see how it plays out when the rubber meets the road. But like, it often comes up when someone's playing devil's advocates. Like you can be as sovereign as you want, but that when they come knocking on your door to whatever it is, take your guns away or take your children away because they're not 
you know, jabbed or all these sort of like worst case scenarios, you know, like how far does quote unquote sovereignty get to you when you're sort of up against the wall like that? Um, I don't know the answer, you know, or when you decide to extricate from the system and you're not going to pay taxes anymore and you're going to be a quote sovereign, like on paper, you know, people seem to be doing it, but what are the entangle or disentanglements and the, and the ramifications of moving from, you know, sovereignty in mind, sovereignty in body via health and attitude, but actually like uh, sovereignty by law. And that's something I thought we were going to talk about, but I, like you said, I sort of liked his attitude. It's like, well, I'm just, I'm walking this righteous path more philosophically sovereign. Yeah. I would also say, I would even backtrack and say, step one to reclaiming your sovereignty is to purchase and then don one of those ponchos that you're wearing right now. Thank you. Thank you. I would agree. <laughs> and, then, and then don't wear any, no, no undergarments, just the poncho. No, any garments, just the poncho. Yeah. Any garments. Uh, by the way, so we took a quick little break between the uh, recording with Anthony and then entering the after party here. And in that time, Mike and I both relieved our, our bladders. And I, I refused to go all the way from my office into the house to use the toilet. So I peed outside and my neighbor got a good look at my penis, which is... <laughs> Um, this was a, this was a, this was the first. I didn't need, I didn't see I didn't really see him pulling into his driveway, and the, there's no leaves on the trees, so right. you, know, you can I can see my next door neighbor, uh, who actually doesn't even he doesn't live in that house. He's he's like fixing it up right now, so I never even think twice about right. having to point you know point my my member in his house's direction. But, <laughs> so there we are. There's that. Uh, I think Will Blunderfield be he would say you weren't close enough to him. Yeah, right. You need to be touching. <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen. I met him, and I don't think that that's that's not uh, that's not in the cards. Right, that is amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's also quite beautiful outside there, isn't it? Uh, it, yeah, it has. It really has been. Um, we yeah, we came out of that that incredible deep freeze a couple of weeks ago, and now we're in the you know in the forties, and sometimes we'll get a little bit of a snow, still wood stove weather. Yep. Anyone, anyone watching watching stories today saw uh, how you prepare for a podcast is stoking the wood stove, the contraband, the illegal wood stove. <laughs> no shit. I mean, that's top of mind right now. It's like, are they really going to take these away from us? And uh, so much to say. This is this is the prime wood stove season where it's like you actually can keep your home warm with just the stove because it yeah. isn't bitter cold. I, I live for these days. It's good. Um so much to say. I mean, one thing that came up in this conversation when you asked him about quack and uh, that it's a derivation of the word quicksilver, mercury poisoning. And I'd, I think I'd come across that before. And that was a nice reminder. Um, and it's sort of with all the different threads that we're pulling on it. It's I had like an aha moment when I realized, first of all, what even is history and who wrote it and what is real, but like this whole idea of vilifying a substance, in this case, mercury, demonizing it as a poison that should be stricken from the culture. But is that really, was that just a psyop? Because it seems like mercury was instrumental in some of these potential 
ether energy structures, much like much like the prohibition of alcohol was sold to us as well. People are drunk and abusing this this uh, you know concoction, but it was really a way to remove it for, as a competitor to fossil fuels because people were also making like. Uh, you know, ethanol and, and engines were being run on it. And it was, it was just like sort of a competitive sleight of hand. And it's just like really interesting to, uh, to put things in a broader context and see all the different ways that industry manipulates and alters narratives to suit their needs. Yeah. And I think wrapped up in that, wrapped up in that, um, his phrase about, you know, quackery and who, you know, who says quackery and you think about big pharma and history, it made me think history being written by the victors, but also the present being formed by those victors. Yeah. It's not over. It's not just looking back and, and that being changed, but the, the very day to day is unfolding and so much of it is controlled and unfolding the way that those victors want it to. Well, and in the digital realm, it's like, oh my god! Like, I don't know if you watched the Super Bowl, but there was an ad advertising. Uh, I mean, god, we could spend an hour just talking about all that. But there was an ad for like the new Google phone camera and how mm. you could just like circle something in the photo and it would just like Photoshop it out, like just with the the touch of a finger. And, you know, Ruthie and I are looking at each other like, OMG, it's just like, it's rewriting history in real time, normalizing it. My, and my son, Willie's like, what? That's pretty cool. And we're like, it's, <laughs> it's so fucked up. It's like, no one will ever know what is real ever again. If we, if we do, you know, you can make that claim that we haven't known what's real for a long time, but now they're just showing it to you yeah. in 2023. Look, you can, you can change uh, the present immediately. You know, it's, I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up. I just had this conversation with my dad. We were down visiting my, my dad and mom and it, it had been a while since we did so. And my, my mom right now is coming off of a foot surgery. So we actually just laid low in the house and it was also during that deep freeze. Yeah. So we hung out and we actually had, we were watching soccer and um, English Premier League and they have, they've instituted what's called VAR, virtual uh, assistant referee. So it's almost like um, same thing in football where, you know, you go to the screen, the, the umpire can go to the screen and review the play and all that. So they have that now as part of the game in professional soccer. And you, where it's most commonly used is determining if a person is offsides or not. And if you, you know, you played soccer, so you understand that offside rule, which can be a little difficult for someone who didn't play soccer or football to, to fully understand. But what's dawned on me is that you've, is the responsibility now has been removed from the referee on the field to some folks who are in a booth. And they are only showing you what replay they want to show you from whatever angle they determine they want to show it to you as the audience member, right? As a spectator. And it occurs to me, Mike, that we have the ability now almost instantaneously to outline and draw around a figure on a screen or in a video and move them however we want to. So in real time, the folks Whoa. in that booth can show us an image and move a person up or back to show that they were offsides or onside and no one is the wiser because we all can, we're all only shown whatever we're shown in live 
we don't have access to every angle there. They have access to that and they're only going to show us what they want us to show, want us to see. So there's so much money now wrapped up in all of sports that I look at it and go, this is, it's never been easier to impact the outcome of a game than now using this technology. And it's a, and it's two, three people in a booth who would know what's happening and everyone else, everyone else watching it live you know, obviously you're watching it live. You can't see it. You know, you thought, oh, he's offside or he wasn't offside, but you don't have access to all those angles. And now the the technology itself that we depend on for accuracy, we think we're getting accuracy, more accuracy in something like a game. And when in fact, I don't think we are. Wow. That's Um, deep. And I, you know, all sports, so football, you could potentially, I I suppose, do the same thing. Um, Well, there's been, there's been a lot of talk about how professional sports are rigged and, and that just puts a whole nother spin on that conversation where it's like, okay, maybe on the field, it's not necessarily rigged, but you know, when they call it into New York, Oh, let's see what New York has to say. And that's what they do in baseball. They're going to have a look at this in New York, you know, yeah. the commissioner, right? Your dad's yeah. novel. It's like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you go higher up the chain. It's, it, it all comes back to if you are not there and seeing it with your own eyes, you absolutely cannot trust anything anymore no. and maybe forever since no. no and we shouldn't you know we shouldn't be watching sports anyway right it's we all should be playing sports <laughs> yeah we should be out <laughs> playing sports it's funny i did have the super bowl on i haven't watched any football i just lost interest i was like this is a waste of time all yeah. of it most of professional sports i think is just a waste of time it's all a distraction i don't actually get anything from it unless i'm gathering with people i realized this year right, I, was sure. like, I actually want to go to a super bowl party and not watch at all but just hang around with people and like chat almost like let's do a super bowl party but not even have the super bowl on <laughs> <I used laughs> because just like, because yeah. yeah it's like uh, it's just community we're gonna do that so because we just moved here i didn't know anyone having a super yeah, bowl party. Yeah. grayson's not feeling great so i turned it on i didn't have any audio the whole game it was mute I actually mm-hmm. ended up like reading and doing some mm-hmm. work on my computer mm-hmm. so i have no idea what anyone said the only time i turned it up a little bit yeah. was for the halftime show and even then i was like i'm not interested in any of this and it was fascinating not really watching the game but just watching it without any sort of audio whatsoever watching commercials without any audio whatsoever I actually felt like less sucked in and mm-hmm. less subjected to all the suggestion and all the commercials and yeah, yeah. You know, all the kind of crap. Um, anyway, I don't know. I don't, I don't care. I went to bed before it was over. I was like, this is just, why am I, I don't care. I just don't care. I'm not invested in this anymore. No, it's, I mean, it is a cultural phenomenon for better or for worse. And, and, you know, my mother-in-law has like a, a massive TV. So sometimes we'll go over there and watch, you know, events, usually like a world series or a Super Bowl or Stanley Cup or whatever. Um, I will, you know, in the summertime when I'm outside all the time, you know, I'm often binging podcasts. Um, but sometimes when I just need a break, I will put on the Red Sox, and it it, it it's like it's like my Netflix and chill. Yeah. You know, I still like listening to baseball on the radio. I like Joe Castiglione. Um, so it, you know, it 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 does serve a purpose that's, in my life. Yeah, I feel like listening to it on the radio is that's just charming and nostalgic and beautiful. There like is a charm to it. And you like you do, said, you can do other stuff. You can, yeah, I, yeah. So it's like the magic of, of the magic of podcasts. Even I don't right? think, I don't think any less of you for putting it on radio. I think more of you. I think <laughs> we, we should have more radio. 
quite frankly, we should be going backwards and not being on screens, but have some more, have some more good radio, solid radio. I agree. I mean, that's, it's so funny. I've talked before about how like I bristled at the, just the term podcast, like being a podcaster, <laughs> starting a podcast, but all it is, is radio. That's it's what radio. it is. It's just rebranded radio for the new millennium. Yeah. And having yeah. a radio show is, and has always been badass. Okay, so we've had one more guest on now who's done a water fast. He's he's ending a water fast. He's done many of them. And we didn't know that getting into this conversation. How clo- how much closer are you to pulling the trigger on a water fast, Michael? Like a a long water yeah, fast. Yeah, definitely closer. Okay. Yep. I mean, I like I said I did my baby one. I did a couple days in December and yeah. it was actually impactful. Um so I I it's just a matter of like uh, working out the logistics for me. You know? So you're, you're obviously not going to do it when you're on tour. No, but I mean, that was interesting. I remember I laid up on my water fast because we had a podcast and because I had some gardening I, manual labor to do that time. And he's like day 13 setting up podcast interviews. <laughs> it's like it's just moving on with his life, you know, not overthinking it in some sense. I think, Michael, as an experiment, I think it'd be really fascinating for you to do a water fast and have a gig booked for day four, day five, or day six and, and, and do it, commit to it and just see how it goes. I think you are, you are such a professional. I don't see what could go bad. I don't see what could go wrong. Like you can get up on stage and perform your songs in your sleep. Because you've done them, you're such a professional, and that muscle memory is there. And I would, I, would, I am so curious to know if the if it takes the performance to another level for you, or your awareness, or your flow state, like any of that. I don't yeah. think you'd fall apart. I'm, I'm, I'm so confident that it would not be a negative experience for you. I think you're right. It's interesting because when you are on the road like there are there's a there's like a sequence of events it's like you get there and you load in and you sound check and then you want to eat something so you're not stuffed right before you hit the stage you have your little time to digest and then then maybe there's a little time to to like play a tune backstage if if the kids aren't there or even if they are there you know, like this last gig we had it was just me and ruthie we had a little extra time we got there early we had some time um you know, sort of scan the vibe and make the right set list. And, you know, it's what I guess I'm getting at is it's 20 years of muscle memory of like the sequence of events. Um, Even like this is, I don't know if this is relevant, but like this poncho, uh, it was cold. We were up in Vermont. It was cold. And I wore my poncho on stage and because it was chilly. It was backstage. It was chilly. Okay. I, mean, I could probably wear this for the first set until I warm up. I imagined I would take it off at some point in the first set. Literally three beats into the first song, I was like, this was a mistake. I was immediately <laughs> overheating um, as soon as I started playing. And I guess that's all to say, like, there's a physiology mm. that's inherent in, in show business or yeah. what I do that I don't even see coming. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. I probably should have better known better. And maybe part of me just out of vanity levels, like I want to trot my cool poncho out on stage so people can see it. But it immediately, my physiology changed. So that's all to say, like, 
Um, it would be triggering in certain ways, I'm sure, because I didn't have the meal two hours before I hit the stage because my adrenaline is going to kick in on beat three of the first song and, and all these things. And because it's not just me as a solo performer, there's another person on stage sure. that, that I have to relate to and at, at some level be on the same plane with. Um, but <laughs> it's something to experiment with. That's for sure. Well, I look forward to hearing the results or perhaps even being there for them. Yeah. Well, Maybe so, a, a maybe summer. a lower state concert, like a house concert or something, would be yeah. something to test the waters. Yeah, or like the summer hoot. That's pretty. <laughs> that's pretty low stakes. <laughs> the fe- you know the festival that you throw and headline. <laughs> and our set has traditionally stressed it's me that, out the most. The thing is, yeah, the thing is, what I noticed about being at the summer hoot uh, and th- this th- these past two years um, is you, it's not like you have a lot to do. Exactly. At the right. summer. It just runs you're, itself. You're lounging most of the time. If we're like, <laughs> if we're being perfectly honest with each other. Oh, there's Mike kicking up his feet again. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That might not be the place for the water fast or that might be the place for the water fast. Well, I think as we get further down the journey, we'll realize like, why do we even set these obstacles up for us? Like we, we create, we create the tensions mm. uh, again, based on experience and muscle memory. But I think we're, as we get more emboldened and, and sure of ourselves, it's like, yeah, whatever, set it up, knock it down. Nothing yeah. phases me anymore. Nothing phases you anymore. I want to go back real quick, just as a wrap to this after party and, and uh, for the listener too, this is what I, this is what I'm taking from the conversation with Anthony that with sovereignty, you start with yourself, you find your sense of purpose in life and you do it. You make your life amazing and spread the love and you learn things that are useful and you teach them to other people who want to learn them. I think that's so powerful. That was a beautiful synopsis, Ben. I like that. And sometimes again, we can overthink these things. Like I have to learn how to put horseshoes on a horse or like all these old world crafts or, or whether it's like carpentry or, mechanics but he's like go to a salsa class <laughs> it's like yeah. i loved that you yeah. know put yourself back in the world relating to a person like doing something with your body is um just as valuable and i that was a beautiful reminder that was a beautiful reminder the advice i saw was uh go live with the amish because <laughs> they're gonna be the ones that they're gonna be the ones that make it out of this <laughs> somebody shared that recently maybe it was chris alvarez like the the answer we've been looking for has been right under our nose all this time all this time yeah well folks nothing you heard here should be taken as medical advice as neither mike nor i are medical experts remember that you are light you are love and you are your primary healthcare provider thanks for tuning in and we will catch you on the next one 